grocery workers are strong and proud. See how our knives are worn. See how our backs are strong and how our hands are scuffed and torn. We stock your shelves with all the food that folks need to stay alive. Without our time and labor, half the middle class would die. Your floors we mop, your shelves we stock, your customers we serve. Our bodies test their limits here for less than we deserve. And if you try to work us harder, we're going to kick your ass. For we will fight this war forever for each other and our class. The management is cutting corners, look how they pretend. They care about the workers while they speed up production. And if you cut our wages, we're going to kick your ass. For we will fight this war forever for each other and our class. Yeah, we will wage a battle for the rights that we have earned. And we will build our union so that everyone is heard. Break our unity. We're going to kick your ass, for we will fight this war forever for each other and our class. And we will not be fooled by the AFL CIO. Our union's not a union if we don't all share control. And if you try co opting, we're going to kick your ass, for we will fight this war forever for each other and our class. But when the boss is off, we slack all day and do our best to stall. We take our breaks for hours, but don't punch the clock at all. We talk amongst each other about how much we hate that boss, and we eat whatever we want and totally Grocery workers are strong and proud. See how our knives are worn. See how our backs are strong and how our hands are scuffed and torn. We're forming our own union and this union's gonna last. Cause we will fight this war forever for each other and our class. And that was Ryan Harvey and Mark Gunnery from the album Government Is War. That was the Grocery Workers song. Greetings and welcome to Howie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics, inspired by Bernie Sanders, Howie Hawkins, Angela Walker, progressive and radical activism, and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. This is Labor Day 2020, Labor Day, the uh, holiday that the U.S. government invented to avoid the horrible uh, potential of workers of the world uniting on May Day, really sapping the, the strength of May Day, the Global Workers Day here in the United States by declaring a separate day in a different month of the year. For, to 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 dedicate quote unquote to labor, but that just gives us two opportunities every year to add some extra 
focus and extra light on the working people who struggle and toil just to earn enough to get by and too often don't earn enough to get by and are left behind in our system. First up is a story by Amy Goodman and Dennis Moynihan. This is published at commondreams.org. This Labor Day, honor essential workers and remember those who died. From windows and rooftops through the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic, millions around the world cheered essential workers on the front lines who daily risked contracting this highly contagious disease. Janitors, grocery store workers, drivers, warehouse workers, letter carriers, food delivery people, teachers and transit workers, along with the doctors, nurses and hospital staff caring for the patients, all became heroes as the worst pandemic in a century swept the planet. Thousands of these frontline workers died. As we celebrate Labor Day, traditionally marked by cookouts and beaches followed by the return to school, we should honor these fallen heroes by wearing masks, social distancing, and fighting for a science-driven course correction to this country's catastrophic pandemic response. President Donald Trump must invoke the Defense Production Act, making hundreds of millions of free masks and tests available coupled with contact tracing, isolation, and quarantine. Kaiser Health News and The Guardian built a regularly updated database of frontline U.S. healthcare workers who died of COVID-19. As of this week, 1,079 were on that list. Among them, 39-year-old Adiel Montgomery, a security guard at Kingsbrook Jewish Medical Center in Brooklyn. In late March, he lost his sense of taste and smell and had flu-like symptoms. Two weeks later, he suffered acute chest pain and died suddenly. He had complained about the lack of personal protective equipment, PPE, which eventually arrived, just not in time to save him. In Arizona, Cheryl and Corinna Thin, sisters from the Navajo Nation, both worked at Tuba City Regional Healthcare as an administrator and a social worker, respectively. Before they both became ill around March 20th, each, without face masks, had interacted with patients and had expressed concerns about the PPE shortage. Cheryl succumbed to COVID-19 on April 11th, Corinna on April 29th. The Navajo Nation's per capita coronavirus infection rate is among the highest in the United States, with over 500 deaths at last count. Meatpacking workers toil shoulder to shoulder, exacerbating the risk of infection. At a JBS plant in Greeley, Colorado, an ongoing COVID-19 outbreak has infected close to 300 out of 3,000 workers, killing six of them, all immigrants. Tin I, age 60, fled Burma, and lived in a refugee camp in Thailand before making it to the U.S. The day after she became a grandmother in late March, she was put on a ventilator. She died on May 17th. 
Stories like these dot the nation, as the number of COVID-19 deaths nears 200,000, with no signs of slowing. The true number of essential workers who have died will never be known, as they are not tracked by any federal agency. Trump has consistently downplayed the numbers of cases and victims, pushing false cures and conspiracy theories, instead of leading a coordinated response. Around the country, thousands of meatpacking plant workers have become infected. Scores have died. UFCW, the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, criticizes the failure to compel corporations that employ its members to report COVID-19 deaths. Meat processors JBS, Tyson Foods, Cargill, and Smithfield Foods, and retailers like Walmart, grocery chains like Albertsons and Kroger, and many more. Frontline essential workers are disproportionately people of color, with many sectors staffed predominantly by immigrants. They drive the economy, grow and deliver food, clean and care for the elderly, and provide child care. Few have the luxury to decide to work from home. They don't have sick days or access to affordable health care. Medical workers still report PPE shortages. The United States, the wealthiest nation in history, has just over 4% of the world's population, but over 20% of the recorded COVID-19 deaths. Trump's abdication of responsibility, rushing to reopen the economy while downplaying the pandemic as an election year strategy, has been stunning, deadly, and potentially criminal. Worker resistance to Trump's lethal pandemic response is growing. Teachers around the country have been pushing back against plans to reopen schools quickly, without plans and equipment in place to protect them, their students, or staff, in a number of cases threatening to strike. In Detroit, 1,600 nursing home workers represented by the Service Employees International Union, SEIU, are threatening to strike as well demanding a living wage, PPE, and better staffing levels to properly handle the threat of coronavirus to nursing home residents and staff. As you celebrate this Labor Day, also commit to solidarity with our essential workers. The shouts of support for them from the windows and rooftops may have diminished as the pandemic drags on, but the risks they face every day has not. And next up, we have a press release from uh, the Howie Hawkins campaign. Hawkins press secretary and activist Kevin Zeese has passed away. The Hawkins-Walker campaign is very sad to report that our press secretary, comrade-in-arms, and brother, Kevin Zeese, passed away last night. He was 64 years old. Quote, I lost a friend. All of us lost a prolific, tireless, and principled advocate and activist for peace and justice. My condolences go out to his partner, Margaret Flowers, also a committed activist, his family, and the many people whose lives were enriched by Kevin and his work, Howie Hawkins said. Kevin was a giant in the world of activism, from peace and justice to cannabis legislation to health care to independent politics. He was 
a well-known scholar, attorney, and writer. He was a co-editor of Popular Resistance, one of the left's most popular sources for news and opinion from a left radical perspective, which he led with his partner, Dr. Margaret Flowers. He served as press secretary for the Nader Kameho campaign in 2004. And that uh, website and news organization that Kevin and, and Margaret Flowers write, uh, manage, uh, Popular Resistance, is a regular source of information for this podcast. He was most recently in the news as one of the Embassy Protection Collective, one of the last four to protect the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C., against the forces of the illegitimate presidency of Juan Guaido and the passivity of the Secret Service and Federal Security Forces of the Trump administration. Kevin, Margaret, and others nonviolently resisted the embassy's takeover by puppets of the United States and tenanted the diplomatic building with the permission of the Venezuelan government for more than a month. Ultimately, they were arrested, and after a trial plagued with restrictions against the defense, all federal charges brought by the Trump administration were dropped. Kevin was also an active force of solidarity with several Latin American movements, causes, and peoples against U.S. imperialism and illegal intervention. He worked tirelessly to denounce U.S. illegal sanctions and covert operations that affect the progressive efforts of the peoples of Venezuela, Bolivia, Nicaragua, Cuba, and beyond. His legal background only strengthened his conviction about the illegality of all these U.S. unilateral sanctions that only increase the suffering of millions of Latin Americans. Quote, This unexpected loss of a compassionate and hugely intellectual friend is stunning, commented Angela Walker, the Green Party nominee for vice president. My thoughts are with his partner, his family, and with all who love him. Kevin leaves an enormous hole in his wake, he would want his legacy to be that we filled it by multiplying our efforts to bring about a better world, Hawkins said. And here is a piece published today by Margaret Flowers on the site popularresistance.org. It is with a sad heart that I report the sudden and unexpected death of Kevin Zeese, early Sunday morning. Kevin was working up until the end and died in his sleep of a possible heart attack. Kevin was going to write a newsletter this weekend about the extradition trial of Julian Assange, which begins today. Kevin understood the great importance of the prosecution of Julian Assange as a battle that will define journalism in the 21st century and our right to know. He was helping to organize an online event featuring Daniel Ellsberg, James Goodale, and Chris Hedges, moderated by Sue Udry. As far as I know, that event will still take place. You can read the June 28th newsletter we wrote about Julian Assange, Government Attacks Media as People's Media Reveals the Truth. And I'm going to read that in just a moment. Please follow the trial, spread the word about it, and do what you can to support Assange. I know that Consortium News will be following it closely. His partner, 
and the mother of his two sons launched a crowdfunding campaign for legal support. Kevin fought to bring truth every day. We must not lose this struggle. I will do my best to keep popular resistance going and strive to maintain the high quality that Kevin brought to it. I will inform you of the details of the online tribute his sons and I are planning in a way we can honor him and keep his legacy growing as he deserves. Rest in power. Kevin Zeese. And here is that article mentioned in the last piece. This is by Kevin Zeese and Margaret Flowers, published at popularresistance.org. Government attacks media as people's media reveals the truth. Government attacks on the media are escalating as the battle for the narrative grows in importance. For the last decade, stories produced and amplified by the dem democ democratized media have put the power structure at risk. People saw government documents showing war crimes and violations of international law. We all saw police killing unarmed people and extreme militarized violence in response to nonviolent protests. These stories have been magnified by people realizing they are media and sharing stories in their networks on a variety of platforms. To maintain control, the power structure needs to stop people from knowing the truth. The recent RAND report on the future of warfare cites the following concern, quote, as smartphones and social media saturate the developing world, militaries will find themselves harder pressed to control both what images the public sees and the narrative surrounding operations. Power holders are striking back. This article focuses on two aspects of this conflict. The new indictment brought against Julian Assange this week and the attacks on media by the police during the nationwide uprising against police violence. Part of the job of each of us is to let them know we see what they are doing to try to hide the truth of their actions. We must hold them accountable for the false narrative they produce and their efforts to criminalize those who are the truth-tellers and work to put out the true narrative those in power want to suppress. The leading truth-teller who is under attack is Julian Assange. The prosecution of Assange will de define freedom of the press, freedom of speech, and our right to know in the 21st century. This week, the federal government sought to bolster its bogus case against Assange with more false and misleading claims in another superseding indictment. The centerpiece of the indictment remains the 17 Espionage Act counts for the publication of documents leaked by Chelsea Manning exposing war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan and illegal global diplomatic intrigues. The federal government did not add new charges, but instead sought to mischaracterize Assange as a hacker because the charges based on the Espionage Act are problematic. The Espionage Act has never been used against a journalist and extradition from the UK is not allowed for political prosecutions. The prosecution of a journalist for reporting the truth about US foreign policy is clearly a political prosecution. The federal government sought to define Assange as a hacker 
using speeches he gave at conferences calling for transparency and describing the power of government whistleblowers who share documents and hackers who acquire them. The government twists important political arguments made by Assange about the need to expose corruption and crimes of government, especially the U.S. government, as conspiring with hackers. To achieve this feat, they produced an indictment that, quote, is riddled with inaccuracies, glaring plot holes, and amateurish errors, relies heavily on testimony from a literal convicted pedophile and diagnosed sociopath, and appears to be little more than a feeble attempt to legitimize the injection of the words hacking and hackers into the prosecutorial narrative, as Caitlin Johnstone writes. In addition, the prosecutors leave out important details, including the FBI's own complicity in hacking in an effort to set people up, including Assange, for prosecution. They also sought to claim Assange and his colleagues at WikiLeaks were conspiring with hackers because of the assistance they gave to Edward Snowden to avoid capture by the U.S. government and move to Russia for political protection. Sarah Harrison of WikiLeaks is described as a co-conspirator for her heroic role in saving Snowden from prosecution, even though she is not charged with any crime. Other WikiLeaks members are included as co-conspirators. The new indictment points to statements made by Assange and other WikiLeaks members at the Chaos Computer Club conference in Germany on December 31, 2013. Assange, Jacob Applebaum, and Harrison participated in a panel discussion called Sysadmins of the World Unite, a Call to Resistance. This effort to turn a public speech by Assange into a hacker conspiracy shows the desperation of the government to convict Assange. Kevin Gostola writes in Shadowproof that, quote, At no point does the Justice Department attempt to connect the alleged recruitment of hackers or leakers to an actual individual who heard these words and acted upon them. The original indictment, which claimed Assange assisted Chelsea Manning in acquiring classified documents, was obviously false. Manning had security clearance and legal access to the documents she leaked and did not need to hack the files. She had already downloaded the documents on Iraq, Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, and State Department cables before contacting Assange. During the extradition hearings, it was revealed she asked Assange to help her acquire prohibited video games and music for her military colleagues. Assange did not even provide help to accomplish these innocuous objectives. The government's desperation is made glaringly clear in this new indictment, as almost all of the new material has been on the public record in one form or other for six years or longer. They date back to Assange's speeches to public conventions of computer experts in the Netherlands and Malaysia in 2009 and 2010. As has been true with each of these indictments, the government is seeking to criminalize normal journalistic practices. This includes encouraging people with inside information to provide the media with documents that are in the public interest. Assisting whistleblowers with avoiding prosecution is common practice. Glenn Greenwald says you can find very detailed instructions on the New York Times and Washington Post websites about how to safely be a whistleblower. 
He describes it as the, quote, duty of a journalist to help their source not get caught. The investigation of Julian Assange began in the Obama-Biden administration. While Trump praised WikiLeaks during his campaign, Mike Pompeo made it his goal to prosecute Assange and destroy WikiLeaks to prevent any journalist anywhere in the world from reporting on U.S. war crimes and corruption. This prosecution is a threat to the fundamental purpose of the First Amendment that allows people freedom of speech to criticize the government without being punished for doing so. The First Amendment is not a protection of corporate media or some narrow classification of journalists, but protects all people. The Assange case is important because WikiLeaks has democratized the media by giving people a method to expose crime and corruption of governments and corporations. And it is important because the U.S. is prosecuting an Australian journalist writing from the U.K. about the United States, thereby putting people at risk not just in the United States, but anywhere in the world. National Uprising Exposes Attacks on Media The national uprising against police violence and the killing of people in communities of color are exposing more efforts to suppress the truth. This comes from arrests, harassment, and violent attacks on media reporting on the protests and showing police violence. Newsrooms are also complicit by suppressing reporting. Charles Baker writes in Business Insider that in early June, quote, in Minneapolis, local law enforcement took aim at Linda Tirado, a photojournalist, and shot her in the eye as she covered protests over the police killing of George Floyd. They later subjected a black journalist from CNN to wrongful arrest. In Louisville, TV reporter Caitlin Rust and her crew were targeted by local cops who peppered them with non-lethal bullets during a live broadcast. This led to an open letter to police endorsed by groups such as the Society of Professional Journalists, Reporters Without Borders, the Committee to Protect Journalists, and National Press Club to stop the devastating targeting of journalists. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, there have been 499 journalists affected in over 400 cases of press freedom violations in the United States since May 26. The U.S. Press Freedom Tracker reports more than 440 aggressions against the media during the protests, including 116 journalists attacked and 36 arrested. An example of this involved two journalists for the Associated Press, who were assaulted by six police officers and ordered to leave the scene of protests in New York City. The police claimed they were violating the curfew. The reporters said they were essential workers and therefore allowed to be there. A video shows an officer responds, quote, I don't give a shit. Another reporter was violently arrested in New York and held for two nights in Manhattan Central Booking and another reporter was violently attacked when he held up his press credentials and shouted he was with the media, as shown in footage captured by the Associated Press. In Los Angeles, an independent journalist was arrested for covering protests after the curfew, after he responded to the police who asked if he was press, saying, Yes, sir. 
In Oakland, a reporter covering a protest was arrested as the curfew approached, despite her press credentials being visibly on display. There have been reports from many parts of the country, including Philadelphia, Cincinnati, Buffalo, Atlanta, Worcester, Omaha, Dallas, Lincoln, Santa Monica, Des Moines, Denver, and Minneapolis, among others. The police also served a subpoena from the county prosecutor's office for videos, photos, and audio captured by reporters for the Cleveland Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com during recent protests in downtown Cleveland, thereby making journalists into an arm of the police. Also in Cleveland, police banned the media from covering protests. Commercial media outlets have taken actions to restrict coverage of protests. U.S.-controlled media outlets Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, have been censoring and downplaying the uprising in the violent police response. A black reporter is suing the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette for not allowing her to cover the protests because of a tweet she made. In response to a long history of media suppressing the voices of oppressed people, there is a growing revolt among black journalists at the Philadelphia Inquirer and the New York Times. Knowledge is power. This century, there has been a dramatic increase in awareness of government and corporate corruption, state violence, and systemic oppression. The internet and social media platforms have given everyone the tools to expose what is going on. It is this awareness that has fueled the rise in consensus that there are significant crises that the current systems can't address these crises, and that we need new systems. The facade of democracy is fading. That we live in a failed state is becoming obvious. And now we have a summer of rebellion, beginning with the Memorial Day murder of George Floyd. The power holders are afraid because they can no longer control the narrative. Even those within their institutions, the corporate media, are breaking ranks and refusing to be complicit. The ruling class will do whatever it can to wrest that control back, even if it means arrests and intimidation of people, breaking the law and violating the Constitution. The prosecution of Julian Assange, assaults on the media, and censorship of alternative voices are all an attack on our right to know. Knowledge is power. We must not lose the right to know what our government, state actors, and corporations are doing. Julian, Assange ex Julian Assange's extradition hearing will be in September. The latest superseding indictment is another attempt to smear Assange's reputation and weaken his public support. It is no coincidence that it came out just as the revelation of his two young children was garnering great sympathy an Australian 60 Minutes did a favorable show on him. We must defend Assange by countering the smears, getting the truth out, and showing up for him. DefendWikileaks.org is one place to get information about what is happening and how to take action. In this era, we all are protectors of the right to know. We encourage you to question what you see in the corporate media, and that includes the so-called public media, like NPR. Support independent media and make it your responsibility to share information that counters false narratives. 
Learn how to be the media by covering injustice where you see it. It's as simple as writing a letter to the editor or a blog, taking photos and videos with your phone, and sharing articles on social media. From government attempts to limit the media, prosecute uh, individuals performing their journalistic duties, and twisting the message, they are also creating their own media with that twisted message. The same thing that they uh, frequently accuse foreign governments of doing. We're doing just the same, and in many cases to a more significant degree. Ben Norton has a new piece in thegrayzone.com. U.S. government-linked PR firm ran fake news networks for right-wing Latin American regimes. A major U.S. PR firm located just a few blocks from the White House has been caught running an industrial-grade propaganda operation on social media. The Information Warfare Blitzkrieg relied on fake accounts and pages to spread disinformation on behalf of right-wing U.S.-backed governments in Latin America. While deploying covert propaganda to destabilize the leftist governments targeted by the U.S., in Venezuela and Mexico. The company behind the campaign, CLS Strategies, signed a contract to represent Bolivia's far-right junta and provide, quote, strategic communications council in the lead-up to that country's ostensible election. After coming to power through a U.S.-backed military coup in November 2019, the Bolivian regime has delayed the election numerous times on specious grounds. CLS Strategies also used its network of fake accounts and pages to push propaganda on behalf of Venezuela's right-wing opposition in the U.S.-backed parallel coup regime of Juan Guaido. Some of the CLS-run Facebook and Instagram profiles even posed as disgruntled Venezuelan soldiers and called on members of the armed forces to rebel against the socialist government. Other pages claimed to be run by disaffected former supporters of leftist leaders like Venezuela's Hugo Chavez and Bolivia's Evo Morales. The D.C.-based company similarly filled social media with disinformation demonizing Mexico's left-wing president Andre Manuel López Obrador, AMLO, and his party, Marina, who have been under increasing attack by right-wing oligarch forces. On Facebook, the PR firm spent a staggering $3.6 million on ads to promote this propaganda. CLS Strategies has close links to the U.S. government. The firm employs former government officials like Mark Fierstein, who oversaw Latin American policy for the Obama White House. Fierstein also served as coordinator of Latin America activities for the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, a regime change arm that has been used as a front for, cover C for covert CIA operations and spearheaded the Trump administration's coup attempts in Venezuela. And if you check back at the uh, previous episode or po possibly the one before that, I had a story about USAID and their uh, contract to hire a firm 
to destabilize Nicaragua. Another CLS senior advisor, David Romley, worked as a Pentagon spokesman, press attaché to the Secretary of Defense and Public Affairs Officer for the U.S. Marine Corps. Before moving to CLS, Romley also served as Vice President for Communications at the German Marshall Fund, a prominent Cold War-era think tank funded by the U.S. government and NATO that has been integral in pushing the new Cold War on Russia and China. A co-founder of CLS, Peter Schechter, was also the founding director of the Latin American Center at the major Washington think tank, the Atlantic Council which is funded by the U.S. and U.K. governments and European Union and acts as a de facto organ of the NATO military alliance. Gray Zone contributor Alex Rubenstein exposed Schechter's unsavory career as a Washington insider, revealing how CLS strategies has worked on behalf of numerous right-wing Latin American leaders whose neoliberal policies spawned migration crises. As Rubenstein reported, Schechter opened a progressive, resistance-themed restaurant in downtown Washington, D.C. called Immigrant Food, forging partnerships with immigrant rights NGOs. Schechter's former clients at CLS include the Colombian ex-president Alvaro Uribe, who oversaw death squad massacres and is being investigated by his country's Supreme Court for crimes against humanity, along with Mexico's ex-president Enrique Peña Nieto, who is connected to drug cartels and major corruption scandals. A decade before it was hired by Bolivia's coup regime, CLS Strategy signed a contract to represent another conservative dictatorial regime, this time in Honduras, after it took power in a U.S. government-backed military coup in 2009. On its website, CLS boasts of having lobbied for more than a dozen foreign governments and having, quote, managed campaigns and advised public officials on six continents. According to the PR firm's own public listing, as well as Foreign Agents Registration Act, filings reviewed by the Gray Zone, CLS Strategies has worked for right-wing political forces from Argentina, Azerbaijan, Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, Egypt, Honduras, Kenya, Mexico, Nicaragua, Nigeria, Peru, Portugal, Serbia, Spain, and Venezuela, as well as the World Bank and large corporations. Another CLS Strategies partner, Juan Cortinas, boasted on the firm's website that he has represented top right-wing leaders and major corporations in Latin America, including the Venezuelan opposition. Since the fake news ring was exposed, however, CLS Strategies has edited its website to scrub some of these compromising materials, removing the bios of associates like Fierstein and Cortinas. This controversy underscores how U.S. PR firms, elite Washington insiders, and foreign opposition groups work in tandem to promote right-wing regimes in Latin America, while astroturfing opposition to democratically elected left-wing governments. Given the extensive links CLS has to the Democratic Party, this scheme also highlights the bipartisan consensus around regime change and support for corrupt neoliberal leaders linked to death squads and drug trafficking. Further, the scandal shows how foreign policy apparatchiks in Washington do exactly what they accuse Russia of doing, 
meddle in foreign elections to try to install their preferred candidates in power. The Gray Zone has reported on social media corporations' U.S. government-backed censorship of independent media outlets and voices critical of U.S. foreign policy. Virtually all of Facebook's purges of alleged fake accounts have targeted foreign governments and firms in other countries. The CLS Strategies Fake News Ring is apparently the first time Facebook has ever taken down a U.S.-based operation. Facebook published a press release on September 1, acknowledging that it had removed a network of 55 fake accounts and 42 pages, along with 36 Instagram profiles, quote, for violating our policy against foreign interference, which is coordinated inauthentic behavior on behalf of a foreign entity. An accompanying report released by Facebook acknowledged that these fake accounts portrayed themselves, quote, as independent news entities, civic organizations, and political fan pages, while some posed as locals in countries they targeted and impersonated political parties. The social media giant said the network posted content in support of the political opposition in Venezuela and the interim government in Bolivia in criticism of Morena, a political party in Mexico. It identified the network as being connected to the PR firm CLS Strategies. Facebook shared the information about this fake news ring with the Stanford University's Internet Observatory, which analyzed the materials and published a report on September 4, showing how CLS Strategies created 17 Facebook pages to promote the Venezuelan opposition, along with 11 for the Bolivian coup regime. A total of 509,000 unique accounts followed one or more of these propaganda pages on Facebook. Some pages were huge, with as many as 163,000 followers, while others had very few subscribers. The Bolivia pages spread Spanish-language propaganda, promoting coup leader Janine Añez, a right-wing extremist from a fringe party that got just 4% of the vote in the November election, but who was recognized by the United States as the country's supposed interim president. The Stanford report noted that the Venezuelan-focused assets supported and promoted Venezuelan opposition leaders, but changed in tone in 2020, reflecting factional divides in the opposition and a turn away from opposition president Juan Guaido. Most of these propaganda pages were run out of the United States, although some operatives in Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, and Peru were involved. The majority of the Facebook pages in this CLS Strategies-led fake news ring published boilerplate conservative propaganda with names like Undone with Socialism and Die Oppression, Free Venezuela. But some of the accounts were more sophisticated disinformation operations targeting disaffected leftists and even falsely posing as Venezuelan soldiers. One CLS-run page titled Chavista Fan posed as a member of the Venezuelan military who had supported late socialist President Hugo Chavez but lost faith in current President Nicolas Maduro. This was echoed by another Facebook page, Liberatory Soldiers, 
which falsely claimed to consist of members of the armed forces seeking to oust Maduro. The Chavista fan page included a profile photo of an anonymous soldier proudly identifying as a supporter of Venezuela's leftist Chavista movement. Fan is a play of words using the English word fan, which is common in Spanish, while also referencing Venezuela's military, the Fuerza Armada Nacional Bolivarian, or FANB, but removing the B which references the left-wing nationalist Bolivarian movement popularized by Chavez. In one particularly insidious post disclosed by Facebook, the CLS Strategies Run account clearly claims to be operated by members of the Venezuelan armed forces. While making no mention of the suffocating U.S. sanctions and embargo that have devastated Venezuela's health sector and economy and prevented the government from buying medical equipment and medicine, the Chavista fan page wrote, quote, After years of looting, the health sector is in shambles. Are we in the fan B going to continue protecting the lie at the expense of the public? The use of vamos in the post, are we going to, expressly includes the publisher in the collective we as a putative member of the Venezuelan armed forces. Chavista fan was targeted at patriotic leftist Venezuelans, but simultaneously spread disinformation on behalf of U.S.-recognized coup leader Juan Guaido. Another post released in the report showed that the page pressured Venezuelan soldiers to rise up against their government by reassuring them that Guaido had offered amnesty. The post also implored soldiers to stop blocking the entrance of supposed humani humanitarian aid that Washington was using as a weapon in its coup attempt. A similar Facebook page overseen by the D.C.-based PR firm was devoted specifically to supporting Venezuela's U.S. government-funded far-right opposition leader Maria Corina Machado, a close ally of neoconservative Senator Marco Rubio, who has openly repeatedly called for the U.S. military to invade her country. CLS Strategy's Bolivia propaganda was similar to its disinformation campaign against Venezuela. The firm created Facebook pages promoting the coup leader Janine Añez with titles like Everyone with Añez. The PR firm also set up a page called Camacho Lovers Santa Cruz devoted to the far right's goon squad leader, Luis Fernando Camacho, a businessman from Bolivia's wealthiest city who started his political career in a neo-fascist Christian paramilitary group founded by former Nazi collaborators. Another page targeted Bolivian women specifically with the name Free Bolivian Women. This Facebook profile posted propaganda attempting to link elected former President Evo Morales and his allies to organized crime a common yet baseless talking point of the right-wing opposition. Some of the CLS strategy's propaganda relied on more devious techniques. A Facebook page the company oversaw was called Mas for Bolivia and sought to drive a wedge in between Bolivians who had previously voted for the movement towards socialism, or Mas Party, and the former President Evo Morales, who was overthrown in the 2019 coup. On Instagram, the CLS disinformation campaign was similarly duplicitous. 
in addition to running parallel accounts with some of the same names as the Facebook pages. CLS created profiles posing as disenchanted supporters of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro. One Instagram account was titled Maduro Style and included as its bio, Maduro, Motherland, and Death. Another Instagram profile was named A True Maderista, or A True Supporter of Maduro. Maderista is, however, not a term used by actual leftists in Venezuela. It is mostly an insult used by the opposition to attack President Maduro and his supporters. An even more dishonest Instagram account overseen by the USPR firm was called VTV Journalists. This page posed as former insiders from Venezuela's state broadcaster, VTV, falsely claiming to be a, quote, account of journalists fired from VTV in a humiliating way, but with good contacts inside. These pages show how Washington-based CLS Info Warriors, posed as Venezuelan critical Chavistas and disgruntled Bolivian leftists to attract progressives who had supported Chavez, Maduro, and Morales, but to mislead them and warp their views by exposing them to opposition disinformation. Conservatives already supported these right-wing opposition forces in Venezuela and Bolivia, so the PR firm was clearly seeking to mislead and propagandize left-wing sympathizers. CLS Strategies signs PR contract with Bolivia's coup regime. After overthrowing Bolivia's democratically elected president, Evo Morales, in a U.S.-backed military coup on November 10, 2019, the new junta immediately sought out public relations flax in Washington to help whitewash its image. Almost exactly a month later, on December 11, CLS Strategies registered under the U.S. Foreign Agents Registration Act as a lobbyist for the Bolivian coup regime. The firm signed a 90-day contract at a neat $90,000, agreeing to, quote, provide strategic communications counsel, which included creating and distributing communications materials, interfacing with the media, and providing communications services as directed by the plurinational state of Bolivia. This contract did not include CLS Strategies' work on behalf of the Venezuelan opposition. It is not clear where the firm got the $3.6 million it spent on Facebook ads. As part of its contract with the Bolivian coup regime, CLS Strategies also helped coordinate meetings between top U.S. government officials and the Bolivian junta's far-right minister of government, Art- Arturo Murillo, according to another FARA document. Murillo is an extremist who pledged to, quote, hunt left-wing leaders from Evo Morales' mass party like, quote, animals, and even went so far as to falsely claim that indigenous protesters massacred by the coup regime had actually shot themselves and then blamed it on the junta. When he visited Washington in December 2019, CLS Strategies organized in-person meetings between Murillo and Senators Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and Rick Scott, along with staffers from the National Security Council, State Department, USAID, Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, and House Foreign Affairs Committee. 
CLS also successfully scheduled meetings between the extremist Bolivian minister and Luis Amalgro, the hardline right-wing leader of the Organization of American States, OAS, which played a key role in the coup, as well as with the head of the OAS Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. The PR firm then helped plan an event with Murillo at the corporate lobby group the Council of the Americas, America's Society. CLS Strategies also coordinated interviews with Murillo for CNN and Español and the major Spanish news agency, EFE. On behalf of the coup regime, CLS likewise contacted the offices of Senator Tim Kaine and House Representatives Elliot Engel, Albio Sires, Mario Diaz-Balart, and Francis Rooney, along with the prominent D.C. think tank, the Inter-American Dialogue, which hosted an event with Bolivian fascist coup leader Luis Fernando Camacho. The agreement that CLS strategy signed with the Bolivian uh, coup government was personally signed by partner Brian Berry, who boasts having worked for an array of large corporate clients. At the same time, CLS Strategy's managing director, William Moore, also registered with FARA to represent the Bolivian coup regime. FARA requires registrants to disclose if they have made any political contributions in the past 60 days. Moore revealed that he had donated to Joe Biden's presidential campaign exactly one week before. William Moore was identified in the Stanford Internet Observatory report as one of the CLS employees who operated the fake news campaign on Facebook. CLS Strategies removed Moore's bio from its website, apparently in response to the revelation of its involvement in the Facebook fake news scandal. Moore also took down his LinkedIn profile. But a cached version of Moore's CLS page is available indicating that it was only recently scrubbed. There, Moore boasts that, quote, he applies his professional experience in Latin America to serve private and public sector clients across the region and in the practice areas of public affairs, crisis communications, and political strategy. Moore's bio adds, quote, prior to joining CLS, William cut his teeth at Strategic Communications and Public Affairs Agency in Bogota, through which he worked with a government ministry. He also represented numerous multinational corporations, helping them as they, quote, expanded operations in Colombia. When CLS Strategies Managing Director William Moore and partner Brian Berry registered to lobby on behalf of the Bolivian coup regime, they were joined by another colleague, Juan Cortinas Garcia. As with Moore's profile, Cortina's bio was removed from the CLS Strategies website, as the firm has apparently tried to scrub its involvement in the scandal. Corinius also took down his LinkedIn profile, which he had linked in to his CLS bio. But in its report on the CLS fake news ring, Stanford University linked to an archived version of Juan Cortina's professional profile. In this bio, he boasts of having, quote, worked with some of the leading political leaders in Latin America, such as former Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos, Argentine Congressman Sergio Massa, and the Venezuelan opposition, helping with political communications, campaign strategy, and developing digital-based campaigns. Cortinas added that he has, quote, 
counseled some of the largest companies in Latin America and boasted of helping a Fortune 500 company overcome a reputational crisis that spread across the front pages of newspapers in Mexico. FARA registration files reviewed by the Gray Zone show that Juan Cortinas has registered to work on behalf of numerous foreign governments, including Aruba, Bolivia, the right-wing administration of President Enrique Peña Nieto in Mexico, and the coup regime in Honduras. CLS Strategy signs PR contract with Honduras's coup regime. Ten years before the United States backed a right-wing military coup in Bolivia, Washington did the same in Central American nation of Honduras. On June 28, 2009, the Honduran military overthrew the country's democratically elected left-leaning president, Manuel Zelaya, and physically removed him from the country. Zelaya told the Gray Zone in Honduras in an interview on the 10th anniversary of the coup that the U.S. government had threatened him because of his close political and economic relations with Socialist President Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. In the wake of the putsch, the new unelected right-wing regime in Honduras searched for publicists in D.C. It found a loyal ally in a firm called Klopak Leonard Schechter and Associates, which would go on to rebrand as CLS Strategies in 2014. In September 2009, Klopak Leonard Schechter and Associates filed FARA paperwork, acknowledging that it had signed a four-month contract for the Honduran coup regime at the cost of $292,000, not including tens of thousands more in additional expenses. At the time, the senior vice president of Schlopak Leonard Schechter and Associates was Juan Cortinas Garcia, who would go on to represent the Bolivian coup regime a decade later. Cortinas said in his FARA registration that his job was to, quote, provide public relations counsel and services to the government of Honduras in their efforts to communicate with policy markers or opinion leaders, their staff, the news media, and other related third parties. In the years following the coup, Honduras became the murder capital of the planet, with some of the highest levels of inequality of any country. The violence and widespread corruption fueled a massive refugee crisis on the southern U.S. border. The subsequent dictatorial leader of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez, or J-O-H, is intimately linked to the drug trade. His brother, Tony Hernandez, was convic convicted of trafficking nearly 200,000 kilograms of cocaine and machine guns. The U.S. District, District Court even stated that infamous Mexican drug lord El Chapo Guzman gave Joe a $7 million bribe to help him rig Honduras 2013 elections. And I'm not going to finish reading this story. This story goes on. It dives in more about the uh, Honduran coup regime, Colombian president Uribe, and goes into uh, work for Mexico and beyond. Um, but this is a tiny sleep, a tiny slice, a tiny little sliver it's like it's like you scratched a little pinprick in the, the the painted over glass so you could peer through and see what's going on in manipulation of the media by PR firms, many with U.S. government um, connections. So next up, 
is a piece published back in 2004. This is a conversation with Utah Phillips, published in The Nation and written by Carolyn Crane. Utah Phillips is a folk singer who tours the United States, delighting audiences with his outlandish stories and challenging them with the ruthless honesty of his insights. A veteran of the U.S. Army who served in Korea, he rode the trains for years after coming home in despair from what he'd witnessed overseas. He met Ammon Hennessy in Utah at the Joe Hill House for Transients and Migrants and discovered anarchy and pacifism. These tenets have since shaped his life and work. Phillips and I live in the same Northern California town, Nevada City, where he was one of the founders of our thriving peace center of Nevada County. It was from the community radio station there that he produced Loafer's Glory, collection of stories, poems, and songs set to the accompaniment of Woody Guthrie-influenced guitarist Mark Ross. And it was to that radio station he went in late September to share with his community an important political decision he'd made, which caused him great difficulty and pain. You surprised many people who are familiar with your work, with your announcement, that you were going to register to vote for the first time ever. This is not easy for me. I'm an anarchist, and I've been an anarchist many, many years. The anarchy that I followed and practiced all of that time came to me through Dorothy Day and the Catholic workers, through Ammon Hennessy, the great Catholic anarchist and pacifist. Ammon taught me, as he did, to treat his body like a ballot. My body is my ballot. And he said, cast that body ballot on behalf of the people around you every day of your life, every day. And don't let anybody ever tell you you haven't voted. You just didn't assign responsibility to other people to do things. You accept responsibility and see to it that something gets done. That's the way he lived. And that's the way the past 40 going on 50 years that I have lived. It's a way to vote without caving in to the civil authority. I'm committed to dissolving. But we are in a desperate situation here, and it's not just us in the United States. There are people all over the world who are affected by these people who have staged a coup on our government. I can see a shopkeeper in Damascus who's threatened by being bombed out. I can see a schoolgirl who's collaterally killed by the actions of these people. There are millions of people in the world who are affected by the actions of this government and they can't vote in this election. I have no use for Kerry. I have no use for Bush. I don't like either one of them. But these folks can't vote in this election. They have to have people vote for them. And I intend to be one of those. What's the best chance they've got to keep them from being bombed and killed? I don't know. Kerry is an unknown quantity. Bush is a known quantity. A crapshoot, isn't it? But I'm going to stand in for one of these people, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong by myself. When you made your announcement, you talked about women who have inspired and influenced your decision. 
Can you talk a little about that? I learned a great deal from Judy Barry. I drove and talked with her the day before her car got blown up in Oakland in 1990. She had come around to the idea that direct and political action are two hands of the same body. I think as an anarchist, and when you keep company with other anarchists, as I have in the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, and this is my 50th year in the IWW, you develop a great antagonism towards the political process, towards statism in any form. However, many of us have come to realize that political action and direct action are two hands of the same body. We have to learn how to work together, the street and the ballot box. In places like Philadelphia or Boston, Massachusetts, when they put freedom in jail, when they put freedom of assembly and freedom of association and freedom of speech in a bullpen with razor wire around it, they put freedom in jail. In the bullpen on Pier 57 in New York, when my daughter, Morgan Phillips, was jailed for trying to shut down Wall Street in an act of nonviolence, civil disobedience. They're trying to tie that direct action hand behind our back. If they succeed in that, how long will it be? How long are we going to hang on to each other's hand? The political action hand? Every significant social movement in this country, anti-slavery, suffragette, labor movement, peace movement, all started on the street. All of them began on the street. Don't give up the street. The street is where we win. We vote with our feet. That's where it all begins. I made a song about that. Bodie Busick put a nice tune to it. No, I won't give up the street. But in this instance, at this time, at this place, I think the situation is so dire that yes, I have registered to vote and I'm prepared to stand in for one of the victims of the kind of brutality that the people in Washington bring to the world. You said that your choice to not vote, to not participate in the system in that way, is one of the most sacred promises you've made. I know what it means to you to make this decision. It's sobering because I think, are things really that bad? Yeah, it is that bad. Now, I'm not putting myself forth as an example. I'm not putting myself forth as a role model. Anarchists don't make rules for other people. You make rules for yourself, and then people have got to learn how to trust you. And if you blow it, you have the courage to change, and you do change. And an anarchist is always something you're becoming. I don't need any congratulations for what I'm doing at all. I feel lousy about it. I don't feel good about it at all. I'm simply going to do it. And if there are consequences of my act, then I harvest those consequences. That, too is anarchy. And finally, a piece published at aljazeera.com written by Hamid Dabashi. Why I will not vote for Joe Biden. Once again, it is presidential election season in the United States. And once again, progressive critical thinkers who care about the future of our humanity find themselves in a quandary. To get rid of the wicked Donald Trump and his corrupt family and cronies, should they or should they not 
opt to vote for yet another corporatist liberal, Joe Biden. It is deja vu. It is a rerun of a tired old movie. It is Groundhog Day. We had it with Trump and Hillary Clinton last time, and we have it again with the same Trump and even worse Biden now. I completely sympathize with the leading American public intellectuals caught in this snare. Cornel West, the eminent African-American philosopher, for example, says he is planning to cast an anti-fascist vote for Biden in November, despite his concerns about the former vice president's ties to Wall Street and militarism. West knows all too well Biden will betray every single ideal and principle for which West stands. But he is so disgusted with Trump, and rightly so, he is doing what in Persian we call jumping from one crumbling column to another with hope. The same is true with Noam Chomsky, the world-renowned linguist and political activist who is also on the record encouraging people, quote, to vote for Joe Biden and then haunt his dreams, whatever that may mean. Politicians like Trump or Biden do not dream for us to haunt their dreams. They are the definitions of nightmares. Neither Trump nor Biden is to be trusted, and Chomsky knows that. But he is jumping from one crumbling column to another. Is it with hope? Or is it in despair? The revolutionary thinker and activist Angela Davis, too, has said she is supporting Biden for president, calling it crucial to back the candidate, quote, who can be most effectively pressured. But really... How so? Biden could not tolerate a single BDS-backing Palestinian activist, Linda Sarsour, taking part in his campaign and swiftly moved to kick her out. That is the sort of zealot Biden is. What sort of pressure can one hope to exert on him? Still, the terrorizing presidency of Trump and the dark ages of ignorance and criminal racism he has unleashed in the U.S. make it perfectly understandable why these and many other eminent critical thinkers who would not be caught dead with Biden are now rushing to declare their support for him. They're jumping from one crumbling column to another and forming a strategic alliance in the hopes that once Trump is out of the picture, they can charge ahead beyond Biden's perilous promises. But I write this essay to differ with these towering moral figures and openly declare that I will not vote for Biden. This is not to say I am more principled than them or care less about the consequences of yet another calamitous term of Trump. For the future of my own and millions of other American children, I hope and wish for a day he is collected from the White House and taken to prison or asylum, whichever is closer. But still, I will never vote for Biden, for I believe the function of people like me is entirely different from even those among the American left with whom I wholeheartedly identify. The task of critical thinking at this point is not to rush to declare we are voting for Biden, an unrepentant racist and self-declared Zionist with a frightening record of misogyny who has actively supported the Iraq war. We had a far superior choice in Bernie Sanders, but twice in a row, the Democratic Party made absolutely sure to kill his chances. The task at hand is to sustain the course of critical thinking that could not possibly embrace Biden. 
Voting for Biden is voting for the very foundation of a political culture that has a whole platoon of Trumps and Bidens waiting to surface. If we choose between Trump and Biden today, next time we'll have to choose between Ivanka Trump and Chelsea Clinton. This vicious cycle can only come to an end through a sustained and uncompromising course of critical thinking against the very grain of this political culture that demonizes the Black Lives Matter uprising, celebrates neo-Nazis, and canonizes Hillary Clinton and Biden as God-given salvation against this murderous banality. A Fateful Moment It was Barack Obama's speech that sealed my decision to never vote for Biden. Up until then, I was thinking to myself that a vote for Biden is not actually a vote for him, but a vote against Trump, alongside other such tall tales and poor excuses. But when Obama took to the podium and began to get emotional and pleaded for people to go and vote for Biden, right there and then, I decided it would be obscene of me to do so especially with this hypocritical con man on his side. Every time Obama starts choking up, I remember him crying in public for children who have fallen victim to gun violence in the U.S., just before going back to his Oval Office to send even more arms to Israel, with which to slaughter Palestinian children, or sell them to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to kill more Yemeni children. Are Palestinian and Yemeni children not children? Every single human being stands for the entirety of our humanity. How could this coward be so openly cruel and callous when it comes to children in Yemen, Palestine, Afghanistan, and beyond, and still pretend to care deeply about America's children? Biden is even worse than Obama in his diehard Zionism, in his support for the apartheid state of Israel, in his categorical disregard for Palestinians. Voting for Biden means excusing all the times in the past he helped arm Israel to murder Palestinians. Voting for him means, should he become the next president, siding with him every time he signs, and he will undoubtedly sign many, a new arms deal to support Israel in its murderous tyranny. Why would any decent human being want to do anything like that? Yes, Trump is an American monster, but so is Biden. People like me have no candidate in this election. Side note, uh, vote for Howie Hawkins. The Ethics of Ultimate Responsibility The task of my sort of critical thinkers is not to jump on the bandwagon and rush to vote for Biden and his running mate Kamala Harris reluctantly. Generations of critical thinkers from Rosa Luxemburg to Amy Césaire to Franz Fanon to Edward Said to Arundhati Roy did not live and think and write for us to cast a strategic vote for a reactionary liberal, an unrepentant warmonger, a hardcore Zionist with a record of racism and alleged sexual abuse. Our task is something else. In his famous essay, Politics as Vocation, the eminent German sociologist Max Weber made a crucial distinction between 
an ethics of responsibility, and an ethics of ultimate end that to this day remain a hallmark of moral choice in politics. We must be clear, he told his audience at the University of Munich, about the fact that all ethically oriented conduct may be guided by one of two fundamentally differing and irreconcilably, irreconcilably opposed maxims. Conduct can be oriented to an ethic of ultimate ends or to an ethic of responsibility. These are two identically ethical acts, but in two diametrically opposed directions. Weber further clarified, quote, This is not to say that an ethic of ultimate ends is identical with irresponsibility, or that an ethic of responsibility is identical with unprincipled opportunism. Naturally, nobody says that. Be that as it may, he still insisted, there is an abysmal contrast between conduct that follows the maxim of an ethic of ultimate ends and conduct that follows the maxim of an ethic of responsibility, in which case one has to give an account of the foreseeable results of one's action. But in between the two choices Weber left us emerges a third, an ethic of ultimate responsibility. Our specific and ultimate responsibility today is not to rush to vote for a lesser evil, as I also argued about four years ago, when the choice was between Trump and Clinton, but to sustain the course of critical thinking that seeks to overcome both evils. More than 300 million human beings trapped to choose between a Coke and a Pepsi deserve and must strive for a healthier choice an entire planet at the mercy of U.S. militarism and warmongering most certainly has everything to lose from either of these two American calamities. And that'll just about wrap up this episode of Howie 2020. Remember, if you want to uh, check out more, you can go to bernie-2020.com. You'll find all the back episodes of Bernie 2020 and Howie 2020 there to check out. You can follow on Twitter at Howie underscore 2020. Check out all of my other podcasts at movingtrainmedia.com. Here is Lil Guillotine with the song Democrats. Thanks for listening. Democrats at a graveyard, they won't save you now. Capitalists not save ya, don't get a jinx somehow. Democrats at a graveyard, they won't save you now. Capitalists not save ya, don't get a jinx somehow. Welcome back again, my friends, to the never stopping land. Cue the capitulation, well done on the lack of men. A win you gotta commit and kill them with your acumen. But what's lacking is an astrally projected path analysis. Democrats should be your practically projected digit path for socialists. Bureaucrats that severely necropolize social moves and hold us back with so much myths. Share a draft that so clearly can verify Total proof that Democrats don't cause conflicts Hearing that they'll suffer heat unbearably Don't make moves that make a mess for capitalists Care to chat on that with me? Please share with me Cause we all lose what did 
you missed your hypothesis? Legit a riff for rightward shift. Democrats at a graveyard, they won't save you now. Capitalists not save ya, don't get a jinx somehow. Democrats at a graveyard, they won't save you now. Capitalists not save ya, don't get a jinx somehow. Democrats at a graveyard, they won't save you now. Capitalists not save ya, don't get a jinx somehow. Democrats at a graveyard, they won't save you now. Capitalists not save ya, don't get a jinx somehow.